We return to bringing light into darkness on Co-op Radio 91.7, KOOP.org on the web. We rejoin our discussion with Dr. Mohammed Sahimi on issues connected to Iran and Afghanistan. Enjoy. Can I ask you also, you can certainly come back to this because these are all connected, but I also wanted you to speak to, in December 31st, 2019, there were protests that were going on at the U.S. Embassy. Apparently, it was in response to strikes in which the U.S. killed some 25 or more Iraqis. It just enraged this, this Shiite population, and they almost took over the embassy, and, but Iran flatly rejected the accusations made by the United States that Iran was behind these violent protests. Instead, it, it seems like it was pretty evident that it was our own behavior that, that instigated it. But this, this is a type of unchallenged propaganda that our media just lets go, and, and then it becomes the impression. Iran hit back and claimed it was the audacity of Washington to blame Tehran for these attacks. That was from their foreign ministry, that America has this surprising audacity of attributing to Iran, and this is a quote, the protests of the Iraqi people against Washington's savage killing of at least 25 Iraqis. Even the Iraqi prime minister at the time, Abdul Mahdi, condemned the airstrikes, calling them a violation of Iraq's sovereignty. This is, again, after protests from the U.S. embassy compound. But my questions for you is to elaborate a little bit more on that incident, but also it just seems that when we took out Soleimani, that it may have been a provocation in order to get Iran to strike out at Washington in a way that then would quote-unquote justify, in an unjustifiable way, a, a retaliation and giving Washington the green light to go to war with Iran. But also, we've already mentioned that the IRGC, the infliction of all of these deaths to a close ally in that part of the world of the United States that nobody acknowledges, namely ISIS. And then also just the way they spun the whole thing as if Iran had started this whole thing. Yet you have United States, they're an occupying force. And then if you attack an occupying force, therefore you've committed some egregious crime as opposed to that's the way war is if you're in an occupying force you should expect to get attacked we certainly i would expect would attack an occupying force here in the us of a can you speak to those issues a little bit because i think that's another important part because because biden endorsed this attack and it's was also widely condemned they we claimed it was a self-defense attack but it's widely claimed to be a, a, another illegal attack. Well, first of all, when General Soleimani was assassinated, the immediate claim was that this was self-defense and there was an imminent threat. But then later on, as time passed by and people started questioning more and more, Pompeo and people like him uh, retreated and acknowledged that there was no evidence for an imminent attack. So. That goes to show what I said earlier, and that is that at least part of the political establishment in the United States had wanted to assassinate Soleimani for at least a decade. So this wasn't really new, except that this time the far right in, in this country, Mike Pompeo and, and others, convinced the sitting president of the United States, namely Donald Trump, to assassinate him. In my view, there is no doubt that at least uh, in the back of Pompeo's mind, one reason for this is what you said. He was hoping that assassinating Soleimani would provoke Iran so much that it would retaliate. 
in very unexpected way so that that would provide a justification for a massive attack on Iran. And fortunately, Iran didn't buy it, didn't do anything uh, irrational. Now, regarding those demonstrations, first of all, as far as my information tells me, before that attack, Iranian officials, including General Soleimani, had told their Shiite allies in Iraq to refrain from attacking U.S. forces in Iraq, including uh, attacking U.S. embassy in Baghdad. So, as far as I know, the, the Iranian government did not want to provide any excuse to people like Mike Pompeo exactly. uh, to advocate attack on Iran. So they had told them not to attack. But the, the fact that these Shiite militia in, uh, in Iraq are allies of Iran does not mean that they do whatever they do based on orders that, that they receive from Tehran. They are Iraqis, and therefore they may be upset because of the fact that U.S. forces are in Iraq. And they don't want U.S. forces to be in Iraq, so they were protesting that. So on that basis also, the claim that that was another reason for assassinating General Soleimani. Wasn't there also a bombing by U.S. forces that killed 25 Iraqis? That, yes, that, if I remember correctly, yes, there was. That's what but, that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. But my point, the point that I wanted to make was that in this country, we make it sound like in Iraq, everybody loves us except some militia groups that are allied with Iran. Well, that's not true. We said the same lies about Afghanistan, and we saw the result. In an article that I published a few days ago on antiwar.com about Afghanistan, I pointed this out. In that article, I said, for 40 years, we were lied to about Afghanistan. First, we were lied about Afghanistan in the 1980s, saying that these Mujahideen were fighting with a communist dictatorship backed by the Soviet Union, whereas they were actually fighting with the progressive reform that the leftist government in Kabul was implementing, whereby it, it was allowing girls and women to get higher education, to go to university, to participate in the affairs of the society, to be professionals, to be doctors, engineers, uh, professors, and so on. They were fighting that. They wanted to preserve their very conservative, very tribal society of Afghanistan. Then, when we occupied Afghanistan in 2001, again, we were lied to because successive administration in this country claimed that everybody loves us in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is now a liberal democracy. Everybody loves liberal democracy. First, they said that Taliban had been completely defeated. When the Taliban returned and started fighting again, they were saying that the only people who don't love us are Taliban. Everybody else loves us. Whereas groups like Taliban, as reactionary as they may be, they are part of the society in that country. In every country, we have these reactionary groups. Here in the United States, we have reactionary groups. Uh, we have very reactionary religious groups that are against vaccination, against teaching evolution, against abortion, uh, against gay rights. Uh, they supported uh, President Trump. These are reactionary religious groups that we have in this country. Mm. In Western Europe, we have the same thing. In Central and Eastern Europe, we have the same thing. The shadow of fascism is returning to Central and Eastern Europe. One country after another is reverting to some sort of authoritarian regime or outright dictatorship, like in, in Hungary. 
and religious groups are playing a fundamental role in return to that. In Brazil, the president of Brazil is supported by Brazilian uh, evangelists. Bolsonaro, uh, right. Well, Bolsonaro, yes, mm-hmm. yes. It's, he's supported by evangelists in, in Brazil, and they are a, re- a religious reactionary group. So my point is that in every society we have these conservative religious groups, and they are part of the fabric of the society. So we were lied to when we said that Taliban had been completely defeated and everybody hates Taliban, whereas they had some support among the Afghan society, among the very conservative, very religious part of the uh, Afghan society, because if, if they didn't, they would have been completely defeated and disappeared, but they didn't. And the fact that they didn't was because they had some support. I don't like Taliban, and I oppose the ideology that they believe in, which I believe is backward interpretation of Islamic teaching. But all I'm trying to point out is that both in Iraq and Afghanistan, there are groups that are opposed to presence of our forces in, in their country. Yes. The very fact that they oppose us mm-hmm. does not mean that they are allied with, uh, with uh, Iran, for example, or another mm-hmm. government. They just don't like to see foreign forces in their country. So it can't work that whenever we don't like something, we immediately attribute it, for example, anything happens in Iraq, we attribute it to Iran, for example. Right. No, that's not the case. There are Iraqi nationalists, and Iraqi nationalists don't like the U.S. forces to be in their country. Right. Let me ask you this, because your article that you alluded to, I, I was looking at, the fake image of democratic yes. Afghanistan mm-hmm. made by the United States collapses with the Taliban victory. You actually yes. have a, a short section in there that, that I think is important to elaborate on in the context of what you just went through, which was really insightful to me. You were talking about when the United States and Saudi Arabia, first with the Shah of Iran, and then after that, uh, he was overthrown in 1979 with Pakistan, didn't just create the Mujahideen to fight the Soviet army, but also that the same Mujahideen morphed into Taliban and part of al-Qaeda. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. When the Soviet army left Afghanistan in 1989 and the war with the central government basically ended in 1992, the Mujahideen branched out. One branch was Taliban. The present Taliban are part of those Mujahideen forces that we trained and armed. Taliban, the Taliban of today, was Secretary of State. In her testimony before the U.S. Senate, she said, very frankly, she said, we have to remember the forces that we are fighting with now, which means al-Qaeda and Taliban and so on, are the forces that we created. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is her testimony. These are her exact words. So after the war in Afghanistan ended in 1992, they branched out. One branch was Taliban, and Pakistan picked up their support because Taliban are among the Pashto people in Afghanistan, and Pashto people in Afghanistan also have a big say in the population of Pakistan. And therefore, the Pakistani government wanted to use them as a way of controlling Afghanistan. Another part of the Mujahideen became Al-Qaeda that had attacked us on September 11, 2001, and before that uh, at uh, several other places. So these are the forces that not only people like you and I say we created, and then they turned their guns against us. These are the same forces that Hillary Clinton, our Secretary of State, who is no lover of Islamic forces or extremist forces and so on, 
acknowledging her testimony in the Senate. Mm-hmm. So we have to remember this. These are the forces that we created. Mm-hmm. We armed, we trained, we supported, we sent them into Afghanistan. And the other thing that I point out in that article that you just mentioned was the fact that creating Mujahideen in Afghanistan didn't start when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in December of 1979. In fact, it started in 1973 when the Shah of Iran was in power. A week after, there was a coup in Afghanistan in July of 1973 mm-hmm. that overthrew the king of Afghanistan, Mohammad Zahar Shah, by his cousin, Mohammad Dawood Khan, and Dawood Khan brought to power a leftist government because he was a socialist and he wanted to modernize the Afghanistan uh, in, based on socialism model. So a week after that coup, the Shah of Iran um, met with James Selesinger, who was Secretary of Defense in the Richard Nixon administration at that time, and he said that we should use Islamic forces, we should train them in order to send them into Afghanistan to fight the leftist government in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So that started there, and the Shah's intelligence organization, Sabat, played a fundamental role in creating those mujahideens. And the Shah was, of course, our ally in this country. Mm-hmm. But then when in 1978 the uh, Iranian revolution started and the Shah was preoccupied, that role was basically given to Pakistan. This is, again, documented. Selig Harrison and Antonio uh, Cordovez, who was a, a deputy UN Secretary General, r- uh, wrote a book in which they actually documented Iran's role and the Shah's role in creating the Mujahideen. And I'll give link uh, in that article that you just mentioned uh, to this fact. So these are the forces that we created that uh, they are fighting with us now, which is what all the progressive anti-war uh, people have been saying for decades. And now the situation is such that, that even people like Hillary Clinton have to acknowledge that these are the people that we created, funded, we armed, and so on. I don't really think it's been the anti-war people that have been saying this. I think they, they're just against war, that this has just not been said. This is the, yes. that we create terrorism, and then we can then say we want to have a war on it. It's, yes, it's, exactly. it's, 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 to, it's totally insanity. Whether we win or lose, is like in Afghanistan, as we've said in the last couple of shows, it's not even important that there is just a boondoggle of profiteering made in war by certain people, whether we win or lose. Listen, I want to first remind folks that we are having this fascinating discussion with Dr. Mohammed Sahimi of the University of Southern California, and he is born in Iran, came to the United States, is a United States citizen since the 70s, and has a, a very powerful understanding of the historical context that is so important in order to try to figure out what's going on in this world. Listen, we have another about six minutes left or so, Dr. Sahimi, and I wanted, with your permission, to turn to some recent developments with respect to Iran. As people know, there was this uh, JCPOA nuclear deal that the United States backed out of, and then when Iran was upset and started to take its own actions, then sanctions just proliferated, and it's just been a very aggressive stance by the West against Iran. A new IAEA announcement on Iran's civil uh, civilian nuclear program, and I'm reading from a piece by Jason Ditz. 
Iran new enrichment is peaceful and in complete compliance with the NPT, the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. I wanted to get out a little bit of ahead of this demonization of Iran because this IAEA announcement on their nuclear program, their civilian nuclear program, has confirmed that Iran has configured two centrifuge cascades at Natanz to enrich uranium hexafluoride to 60%. This is an enrichment level pushed by Iran's parliament after recent Israeli sabotage attempts and it's an enrichment level Iran has pointed it out as entirely peaceful and legal. What I found interesting that they have let the IAEA know this all along. There's been no clandestine work going on. It's the highest Iran level of enrichment that has ever been attempted. And the matter is somewhat controversial because it has no, Iran that is, has no real apparent use for 60% enriched uranium. I I remember that 20% enrichment is really important for some types of uh, nuclear medicines and that apparently they're using it as a bargaining chip that apparently that, that they can actually reverse all this as well. But can you speak a little bit to what's going on here, um, the, the last thing I wanted to, to, to just comment on that you can include in your remarks was that Robert Malley, he's President Biden's his special envoy to Iran, that um, indicated that the United States, this is current, you know, this is like the 25th of August, just a few days ago, the U.S. is prepared to compromise on difficult issues related to the nuclear deal. The Iranian position was that they've got a new president. Abraham Razi, and that apparently there was some claims that the United States wanted that Iran was not willing to negotiate with, namely its ballistic missile program. Can you address that a little bit about what's going on with the negotiations and the jockeying for leverage in those negotiations by both countries? Sure. First of all, let me let me point out that the enrichment at 60%, as you pointed out, has no known application, at least for Iran it doesn't. I mean, 60% enrichment, uranium at 60% enrichment, it can be used as fuel for certain type of sheep on the ocean. Iran doesn't have that type of sheep. So that means that Iran doesn't have any use for it. So why do they do it? Well, they don't say it in this country. Iranians are doing it at very, very small scale just to show that they can actually do it. But at the same time, as you pointed out, they do it at such a small scale in order to be able to reverse it completely and go back to their obligation and their their nuclear agreement. The other point I want to make is that whatever Iran is doing is precisely according to the nuclear agreement. According to the nuclear agreement, if one side refuses to deliver its obligation, to act upon its obligation, the other side is free to, to distance itself from its obligation under the same agreement. It was the United States that left JCPOA. It was the United States that imposed economic sanctions on Iran. So if Iran is doing something, it's according to Article 35 of JCPOA that allows Iran to do this. So Iran is not doing anything illegal. And as you said, and also Jason Dietz, the excellent author at antiwar.com, pointed out, whatever Iran is doing is, is legal and peaceful. There is no use for this. Iran doesn't have a lot of it. Iran doesn't have a stockpile of 60% uranium and so on. But this is just bargaining chip agreement about returning to JCPOA. My understanding is the following. The Biden administration insists on inserting a clause in the agreement for return to JCPOA, according to which Iran commits itself to negotiate its missiles program. Mm-hmm. Now, whether Iran is willing to 
negotiate its missile program or not is a separate issue. Mm-hmm. Iranians don't want to have this clause to be inserted in JCPOA or agreement for returning to JCPOA because that can be used and excused later on by the, the next U.S. administration or even the present U.S. administration saying that Iranians are not willing to negotiate and therefore they have violated the JCPOA and therefore we will go back and impose right. all the economic sanctions. Mm-hmm. So Iran says these are not part of uh, nuclear negotiations. If we are going to negotiate, we, we have to do it separately. This has nothing to do with Iran's missile program. Now, I have friends in Iran, reformist friends that work in the government for years, and and I am still in touch with them. And they told me, actually, that Iran has agreed confidentially with the United States to negotiate aspects of its nuclear program. But it hasn't been officially announced because there is no agreement on returning to JCPOA yet. But once it's done, then that can also be discussed and perhaps eventually announced. So that's the problem. Mm -hmm. First of all, Iranians are not doing larger scale. Secondly, Iranians are doing according to JCPOA itself. Third, Iranians are doing as a bargaining chip. Fourth, Iranians insisting that no new clause for returning to JCPOA Mm -hmm. should be inserted in the agreement that has nothing to do with the nuclear agreement and nuclear program of Iran. So that's the situation. And the the fifth point I would just add that you mentioned, which I think is most important, is everything that Iran is doing is being made public through the IAEA, which which they're dutifully reporting to. Well, listen, we're out of time. I wanted to thank you so much for your time. Also, I wanted to remind folks we've been visiting with the Distinguished Professor of Chemical Engineering, Dr. Mohammed Sahimi. And Dr. Sahimi, you've written hundreds and hundreds of pieces that are very well written, like a scientist. (laughs) I really like that writing style where you can go right to the source and those types of things. But if people are interested to access some of your writings, what would you suggest is the best way to do that? I normally publish at antiwar.com. I publish on Responsible Estatecraft, uh, the new website. I, pub- I used to publish in Huffington Post, uh, but they stopped accepting blood, so I stopped doing that. And I also have a very large archives of articles at the website PBS Frontline Tehran Bureau. Tehran Bureau is still active, not as a website, but as uh, some other types of organization, but I have a large archives of articles there so they can they can access and read if they want to. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Sahimi. Really appreciate the education tonight, and we will stay in touch and harass you to come back at some time in the near future, I hope. Best to you and your family, and thank you so much for, for your dedication of getting out good information that brings light into the darkness. Thank you so Please do keep harassing me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.
Come 